In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Welcome to episode 32 of Paw and Order. I'm joined today by my co-host, Peter Sankoff. In person. In person. Sitting right next to you. And we're actually in the Northwest Territories today. We're in Yellowknife. Yellowknife in the NWT. It's cold in the NWT. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cold, but it was a, a nice sunny day at least. It hasn't been as cold as it could be. Yes, but we are coming to you from the Northwest Territories. It's our first time ever that we've ever done... Pawn order in the north. It's actually our first time either of us uh, ever being in the north at all, so <laughs> that that's too. significant too. That too. But we came up at the kind invitation of Kelly McLaughlin, who's the president of the Canadian Bar Association Northwest Territories branch. And Kelly made sure that the uh, CBA's professional development conference had lots of animal law content, so we joined for a podcast panel. We talked about podcasting, how you do it, the benefits for public interest lawyering in particular, and we were joined by our good friends Mike Spratt and Emily Tammon of the Docket Podcast. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a really good uh, panel. The, the The conference was very well put together, but we really enjoyed getting to talk about podcasting. It was nice to sort of talk about how podcasting is becoming uh, such a vehicle for social discourse in, in our society, and uh, we wanted to share how uh, Pawn Order would uh, be part of that. Yeah, really good time. And today we actually had the chance to visit the Northwest Territories SPCA. So we met lots of cute shelter dogs and cats as well. The dogs up here are usually massive because they all They're have big a huskies. bit of husky in them. Mm. Yeah, there was one dog named Trapper who was like, he's a black husky dog. Uh, if you watch Game of Thrones, he totally looks like a dire wolf. He's just enormous and he was only eight months old. And you just think like, wow. The term is a northern special because apparently a husky gets into everything, uh, no matter what type of dog there is here yeah. in the north. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been really interesting um, getting to a chance to see a little bit of uh, uh, Yellowknife in addition to meeting with the people here and a little bit of talking about uh, animal issues. Animals are of course front and center here in the north, uh, part of people's way of life. You see dogs everywhere. Certainly, it's certainly a big part of uh, people's lives. There's a lot of sled dogging up here, and uh, we've had a chance in addition to going to the SPCA we were on cabin radio a shout out to our friends our new friends at cabin radio which is an internet radio station um, in Yellowknife dealing with northern issues we stopped by their studio and did an interview which you can probably find on their website cabin radio pretty soon and most importantly we visited one of their staff members whose name is Penny Penny's a four-month-old puppy and she was pretty cute pretty cute they, it's we, we need to have a, a dog in our in our studio here although we're, we're in a hotel room so I don't know if it would it would make that much sense <laughs> but you might see a photo of Penny in our show notes so check them out yeah we'll definitely have to do a shout out to Penny that was one of the highlights it was really in, it's really it's been interesting I mean we could talk at length it's really a paw in order so our show is really about animal stuff but it's been very interesting to sort of get a chance to see Yellowknife and we've done we've done a fair bit we did touring yesterday and walked around town and got a chance to really see what's going on here and just talking with the people it's been very welcoming to us and really really wanted to hear a little bit about what we do so it's been it's been it's been great to have so many people you know welcome us into town and uh, get a chance to talk about pawn order and uh, animal issues We've even found some good food to eat. There is an A&W in town, so oh, <laughs> when all else fails, yes. we always have access to be on burgers. <laughs> but there was a, a cool Northwest Territories brewery that we went to, which has a tofu burger, which I think we're going to try later. And some other tasty snacks. So it's been a good trip <laughs> yeah. so far. Yes, the, the culinary has not been the highlight of the trip. Uh, Yellowknife could use a few more vegan options here and there. We don't like to disparage our hosts. They've been very welcoming. But, you know, another uh, vegan option or two would be nice. It's, I wouldn't, it's I won't just lie. a small town. That's, yeah, you know, it's that's a small really town. What it is. That's the way it is. It's, it's, certainly no, it's certainly no better, no worse than, you know, driving through most of rural Alberta and, and looking for vegan options. It's totally. pretty much the same thing. But uh, yeah, the the best part has certainly been the welcome we've gotten from everybody here, and uh, it's been really nice. So many people were excited to see that we were coming up to do pawn ordery stuff. So there's been a lot of 
action on Twitter, sort of retweeting some of the stuff we've done, and everybody was inviting us to do stuff. So it's been really wonderful. I'm glad we were able to come up. Same. So just some other things that have been going on lately to update you guys on. Mm. Animal Justice released uh, our first ever sort of short documentary recently. It's a short little film about a hen named Penny. We were talking about a dog named Penny a few minutes ago, but I guess this is a popular name for really cute animals. And of course animals. my daughter named Penny, which has come <laughs> up on the show before. So there's been a lot of Penny this week. It's a good name. So Shout out to my daughter, who's probably not listening to this, but, you know, away back in Edmonton. You can check out Animal Justice's YouTube channel to find videos about Penny, but we, we produced a video that's about six or seven minutes in length. Mm. Penny the hen was rescued from a factory egg farm. When her rescuers went onto the farm, they found her buried in a manure pit. She looked like she was on death's doorstep, and miraculously, she survived after they brought her to a vet. And a number of other hens were rescued on that day, too. They all ended up living with uh, a great activist in BC. His name is Jeff. Hi, Jeff, if you're listening. And they uh, live now in Jeff's backyard. It's a huge, beautiful place with many opportunities to peck about in the dirt and the grass. Penny's a bit of a special hen because she formed a deep bond with Jeff, and she actually comes into the house at night to sleep. She climbs on top of the bed with Jeff and snuggles into the blankets with him. So we produced this film to really showcase to people, first of all, the horrors of a factory egg farm. There's lots of great content in there from our colleague Anna Pippas, who explains what the Canadian egg industry does to hens, why it is that when you see hens rescued from battery cage egg farms, they're often missing almost all of their feathers, and uh, what life should be like for them when they're rescued and rehabilitated. So check it out if you have a chance. It's really inspiring. It also prompted a piece from the Dodo, everyone's favorite animal content social media site. Awesome. And um, we are uh, heading back to the South uh, as of tomorrow. We haven't had a chance uh, to talk much about uh, what we've been doing. We both come up here and just complain how busy we are (laughs) with all the stuff we have to do, (laughs) including, you know, getting another episode out, although we're very excited to be in person doing an episode. But um, I wanted to shout out quickly to, um, we've gone into the summer season, how quickly it goes, uh, which means I'm no, it's not summer, certainly not where I'm living or certainly not in Yellowknife. Uh, We haven't reached summer yet but uh, summer for me means that I'm no longer teaching so so I have uh, I've moved into my summer office and I have three students working with me and 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 most of them are working on some form of animal case I've got a, a few animal cases and I've got some animal law research so I wanted to shout out to my three new students uh, Holly um, um, uh, Missy and Zach who are working with me in my Edmonton office and and each of them are doing at least some animal law work which is really good and I believe you've got some students starting with you this uh, next week too. Yeah, that's right. Pretty soon we're going to have three students at Animal Justice for the summer as well. I think I'll wait until they start and, you know, maybe we'll even have some of them on the podcast. Oh, yeah, we could do that. We could bring on some. We we should do some interviews on the podcast with the students. It's always good to have that sort of uh, fresh energy, you know, really excited about these issues coming out. The next generation of animal rights lawyers in the making right now. Absolutely. So that's what's been going on with us. It's really been all NWT stuff and uh, our time here. But uh, there has been plenty in the news, Camille. And uh, we should lead off with uh, our discussion of a bill in the Senate, Bill S-238. It is the bill banning shark finning. What's been going on with that? Right. Well, this bill was proposed quite some time ago. Again, it was held up for a long time. And then it sort of took a while after it passed in the Senate for it to be introduced in the House. Eventually that happened. And uh, just recently, it passed through second reading, so it's now destined to the Fisheries Committee. For those of you who don't follow House procedure with bated breath and know all the ins and outs of this, it means that at this point, it has to go through a process at the Senate, sorry, the House of Commons Fisheries Committee. It might get amended. It will then go back for a third reading vote in the House of Commons. And if it passes without amendments, it becomes law right away. If there are amendments, it goes back to the Senate and it has to be approved by them. So we're hoping there aren't amendments because it would effectively put it in a position where it would be difficult to pass. But it's good that we are getting so close. Canada actually imports the most shark fins in the world outside of Southeast Asia, which a lot of people are surprised to hear. Wow, I'm surprised to hear. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the shark fin trade is frankly decimating shark populations. So it's high time that uh, this bill gets the force of law in Canada. Very broad support by Canadians, so we're hopeful. 
Yeah, it's worrisome. Like whenever you reach the end of a, a parliamentary mandate, and we know that an election's on the horizon, uh, it's always worrisome to see which of these bills that you've been working so hard on are actually going to make it through. And and I guess ST thirty eight is one of them. You, you've spoken to me, Camille. We, we we should perhaps we should just update briefly on some of the other bills that are in in Parliament as well, because I mean some of them look pretty good to get through. We've talked at length about the whale and dolphin uh, bill, and we feel pretty good that that's going to get through. It's looking pretty promising for that one. We don't anticipate too many further problems. Uh, Of course, opponents of setting whales and dolphins free uh, have done everything they can to fight it, but we've basically won this battle, I think. But there are two other ones that we are worried about. Mm. One of them is uh, S214, which is the cosmetics testing bill. Uh, Frankly, it really just got introduced in the House of Commons. Yeah, it seems to me that's too far. Like, I just can't see that getting through committee and and suddenly make it through because they're going to shut down when? At the end of June? Is that the plan? Yeah, June 21st is the last sitting day right now. Yeah, it seems to me that's that's usually too slow. I'm worried about that one. Probably too close. So, you know, if you're listening, what you can do is contact your MP and ask them about this, but... The other one that we're watching closely is Bill C-84. That's the bill that Peter and I both testified about at the House of Commons Justice Committee. And that has to do with bestiality and animal fighting. We, of course, have been fighting to close the bestiality loophole in Canada for quite some time. And we're hopeful that this bill was going to pass. But at this point, uh, I'm starting to become concerned. The government has not reintroduced it yet. It's just got to go through third reading in the House. Is that the plan? Or I'm sorry, I thought it has to go through the House and then up to the Senate. Is that correct? That's right. So it started in the House of Commons. Right. It needs to get to the third reading vote and then go to the Senate and repeat the committee and voting right. process. Um, and has committee reported back on it in the House? Yep, committee reported on so it. So it's just, it's, just, it's just essentially introduction, third reading, and then off to the Senate. The government just needs to That's bring it forward. That's all it is, yeah. But every delay, hearing. every day is delay, right? Because we never know what could happen in the Senate. If it doesn't get introduced... All you need is any obstruction in the Senate, and that's, that's it. If it doesn't get introduced very soon, this bill will not pass yeah, before that's, the and election. And that's deeply disturbing, because this bill has been through... You know, we've been talking about this since 2015. I, I feel like we don't even need to talk about it. Again, we've we've moaned and and complained about this issue for so many months, and uh, it's really upsetting to know that again we're just stuck with this question of delay. And it seems to be a weird issue of delay. Um, we've seen this 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 issue with bestiality has been introduced by several private member bills, and for whatever reason, it's been unable to get any traction. And finally, we get this bill introduced in Bill C eighty four and. Again, we're back to the same question of whether it has enough traction to go on. Yeah, and you know what's happening is that because we're getting close to the end of the legislative agenda before the election, the Liberals want to pass a bunch of their legislation, and this one does it's not on a seem priority to have made basis. the cut. Is that it? Yeah. It's, it's frankly, mm. it's, it's appalling. Like, animals are just never their priority. It's always the very bottom of the list. And if we can't even get something that all parties support mm. passed... What hope is there? Yeah, this is really annoying. It's it's just it's it's more an irritation than anything else because again, it's not like we know what's going to happen in the next election. We have no. I, I mean, I would tend to think that this bill could be brought back by any party that ultimately takes power. It seems to me. But like what we have learned with these animal bills is you can't take anything for granted. We've said that many times before that this seems like a no brainer and this one has all party support. And yet again and again and again, these questions, these bills languish. Procedural delay, things come up, changing priorities. There's no slam dunk. Even or, if you or start, or one MP or one senator gets a bee in their bonnet about some aspect of the bill that may cause a problem that's already been dealt with, and it doesn't matter, and that just delays, and suddenly, before you know it, the bill's moved on, or we've prorogued, or whatever. It's very frustrating. Very frustrating. And if this bill doesn't get passed by the election, I, I do hope that people will remind MPs, particularly government MPs, about that and mm. tell them or hold them to account for it. Yeah, really deeply disappointed. We'll obviously keep you posted as we go forward. We've got a few more shows before Parliament uh, shuts it down before the next election. So we'll obviously keep you posted on that. That's right. And we have one legal case to Mm. discuss with you as well this afternoon. This is an interesting case involving the sale of glue traps by Walmart and I believe a couple of other companies as well. Glue traps are used to catch mice. They're considered incredibly cruel Uh, Essentially, mice, it's a a sticky piece of paper that mice or other animals or insects get caught on and essentially die of starvation Mm. or predation or some other horrible means. They're they're not considered at all uh, in any way, shape or form. A, A kind way to kill an animal is if that's really a thing, but these are among the worst of the worst. Yeah, absolutely. And the the nature of the case, what makes the case 
I'm going to go with interesting is that the case is being brought against a retailer, really, or against several retailers. I believe it's, it's, it's several. several retailers. So instead of suggesting that it is illegal or or condemning the government for allowing these traps to exist, essentially the uh, the uh, the group that is bringing this case, and, and we should say it's not animal justice. This is another animal. Do you remember the name of the group? Canadians for Animal Protection. Sorry, Canadians for Animal Protection is bringing its own case, and what they're trying to do is they're essentially trying to attack the retailers for selling these traps, saying that these traps are so cruel that it's against the law to sell them. Yeah, they're violating the criminal code animal cruelty provisions because of the cruelty involved in these traps. Yeah. So legally, there's some questions to ask about this case. Um, I'm always in favor, or generally in favor, of creative means of attacking the law, but... This is an interesting case, and I say interesting as a way of conveying some concern about the way in which it's being brought. I, I, I've always thought it's a, it's a strange idea to go after a retailer and say that what they're doing is illegal. Essentially, what you're trying to do is enforce the criminal law against them as a private citizen, and that has generally not been successful in Canadian history. It's very hard to say that essentially these retailers, Walmart, are breaking the law. There's nothing specifically in the law relating to glue traps. So essentially they're saying that our interpretation of the law is that these traps are so cruel that you can't sell them without violating the criminal law. And we have seen similar claims before. There was a challenge at at one point to, I believe it was an expansion of a bird hunt on the basis that the way the, the birds were hunted would be in violation of the criminal code. That didn't get anywhere. And then, of course, there was the famous case of Lucy the elephant out of Edmonton who's confined there at the zoo and there was a, a similar claim that the conditions she was being kept in violated the law and that didn't get anywhere either. Yeah and, and I think to explain it to non-lawyers the challenge with these types of challenges is that essentially you you as a private citizen the group that's trying to do this is is the argument as the argument goes are trying to enforce the criminal law because essentially these traps are on the shelves so imagine that you know to put this into context imagine somebody was selling i don't know heroin on the shelves right and they had a Walmart was selling heroin for example well the idea would be that if they were selling heroin and heroin was illegal, the government should enforce the criminal law and go in and do this. But what's interesting about this suit is, well, first of all, it's not an attempt to compel the government to enforce the law, which I think would have as many challenges. It has its own legal challenges. But but also it's essentially saying, well, you can't do it because it's against the law. But that begs the question of who gets to decide whether or not it's against the law. And, and traditionally, it has been the public function of the government to decide, well, we think these traps are cruel, so we're going to bring a prosecution against you. And the argument of Walmart will be, well, that's never happened. So we're allowed to continue to steal these traps. There's no rules against them that clearly specify that they're illegal. And it doesn't really matter to Walmart how cruel they are in the public understanding sense of the word. The, uh, the idea is there's no ability to restrain them from doing so absent a public action against them. Mm, that's right. So we'll be following this. It's an interesting case. You know, sometimes to be optimistic about it, sometimes you bring a case, you bring a case, it fails, it fails, it fails, and then sometimes it succeeds. I I think that's right, and I think it's interesting that the judge who's been appointed to the case is a former law dean named Lauren Sawson, and if anyone is willing to look at this in sort of a creative way, whether it's successful or not, it may at least provide some signals forward for how animal advocates can raise these cases, because that's a frequent theme on this show. You've heard it from us before. I'm not necessarily convinced that this case will be successful in moving its action forward, but one of the problems we face is we struggle in a lot of these areas to figure out how to bring these cases forward, because traditional uh, doctrines of legal access, known as standing, I believe we've done a podcast on standing before, or at least commented on it many times, um, make it challenging for animal advocates, and we need guidance. So sometimes, even in these cases when you lose, you may get guidance going forward of how to do this the next time. So we'll be watching this one and, of course, keep you updated on any steps in the court system. Okay, and for our main segment, we're going to talk about some general issues that have been arising lately with animal activism and some more emboldened tactics and strategies than we've seen in the past from activists and how that's interacting with the criminal law. So let's get a little bit more specific. A couple of the cases we're going to talk about involve uh, recent charges being withdrawn against Toronto activist Jenny McQueen 
an occupation uh, called Meet the Victims, M-E-A-T, the Victims, that happened in Abbotsford, British Columbia, with about 200 activists showing up to a farm there. And just in general, how the court system and prosecutors and police have been responding to this increase in activism and dealing with the legal issues that arise. Yeah, I mean, we saw this a couple of years back with the Anita Crines case, when that was the first one, when they decided to go after her. And it's certainly not the last. We've highlighted on show after show uh, where animal activists are getting, you know, animal activists do something to uh, provoke or bring up a state of affairs, and uh, and uh, police often charge. And what's interesting about these charges, and we've talked about this again um, on past episodes, you know, in one sense, you could see this as a victory. Jenny McQueen um, had her charges withdrawn. So the Crown decided not to proceed, you know, and in the in, in, in the case of Anita Crines, as we saw a couple of years ago, they did go all the way to a trial where, where she was acquitted. But what we've seen here and what's concerning from our standpoint is, first of all, you know, the use of charging as a way of trying to silence protests is problematic in itself. Whether the charges are ultimately withdrawn, not everybody is as, you know, resolute and willing to go through with these things as Jenny McQueen. If the if the police continue to use these charges um, as a way of silencing or threatening protests, it's a concern to all animal advocates. And let's just back up a minute. And for those who haven't been following this case as closely as we have, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Jenny McQueen and the situation that she was in. A couple of years ago, Jenny, who is a well-known Toronto activist, she's often featured in news reports on activism. She has been um, arrested and charged before for her advocacy for animals. Uh, She does work with Direct Action Everywhere, with Animal Liberation Toronto, uh, with many different organizations. She's been a stalwart in this community for quite some time. Jenny went to a pig breeding facility near Lucan, Ontario. That's a little bit north of London. And this facility keeps about 2,600 pigs. It impregnates mother pigs so that their piglets can be born and fattened up and sent to slaughter. So about 2,600 pigs at this industrial-style breeding facility. It is huge. Once she was inside, Jenny witnessed hell on earth. She recorded footage of mother pigs confined in gestation crates, which are small crates that pigs are kept in while they're pregnant. And... They're, they're so small that the pigs can't turn around. They're, you know, essentially body-sized crates that confine them. It's extreme confinement. Um, Jenny saw baby pigs. She saw many mother pigs suffering from prolapse, which is actually a horrible, horrific condition that veterinarians say should be treated immediately. And that's where essentially organs are protruding outside the body of an animal through the vagina or the anus. McQueen witnessed this. She documented this. With her face uncovered and with her identity exposed, she removed one baby piglet from the facility, and that piglet is now in some undisclosed location, but is safe and healthy. So this all went out on uh, Direct Action Everywhere video on the internet. It was circulated widely, and the pig facility obviously was not cast in a very good light. Jenny was eventually, uh, well, the police eventually executed a a warrant on her home. They showed up on Thanksgiving weekend in the fall of 2018. They ripped her house apart and they charged her with two offenses, break and enter and mischief. And that's that's what I was saying when you when you talk about what happened to her at the end of the uh, case. You know, we can talk about the content in more depth. But just remember that these withdrawal every time the police withdraw, that doesn't like reverse what happened. It doesn't take back the fact that her house was raided and searched. It doesn't it doesn't take away the coercive power of the police to use charges as a way to search, as a way to go through your communications, as a way to charge you and put you to the expense and the time of having to defend yourself. So we. Can can't, we have to remember that, you know, so far these cases end up in wins in the sense that they don't result in convictions, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a win for the people involved or, or for, for everybody at large. No, it still has a lasting impact. So the first thing you have to do when you're charged with an offense like this is find a good lawyer. So Jenny did that. Jenny was represented by uh, two of the top animal uh, defense lawyers, I would almost say. They're, they're criminal defense lawyers, James Silver and Gary Grill. They represent animal activists frequently, including winning the pig trial on behalf of Anita Crines. So McQueen was represented by the two of them. They negotiated with the Crown. Uh, it looked like the case was set to proceed to trial. And then in kind of a surprise move on May 1st in London, uh, there was a courthouse rally because charges were withdrawn against uh, Ms. McQueen. And, and what's interesting about this is that the Crown 
said on the record that they were withdrawing the charges because there was no reasonable prospect of conviction. So, so, so those of you who aren't criminal lawyers understand uh, there are sort of two reasons that crowns wouldn't typically proceed with charges. One is if they don't think that they can get a conviction on the facts that they have before them, and that's where they would withdraw for no reasonable prospect of conviction. The other situation is when they decide it's not in the public interest to prosecute, and that's a pretty broad and discretionary test. There's lots of reasons they might decide it's not in the public interest. And, you know, it's interesting that they said in this case, Peter, that it was because they didn't have a prospect of conviction. I actually think they probably did. They had pretty solid evidence that she was there on the facts that she admitted. She took a pig. She entered the facility. But it seems to me like it was much more like a public interest decision not to prosecute. And we have to wonder why. Was it the pig facility that asked the prosecutors to eventually withdraw charges because they were fearful of the publicity? These are good questions. I don't. I obviously don't know the answers to this. Um, we should keep in mind that, of course, in Ontario, it's the police who lay the charges, and it's the Crown who decides whether or not to proceed with them. So the Crown may well have had a different view of the, you know, the quality of the charge for whatever reason. I don't know. Obviously, I don't know what was going on with the evidence, whether or not the evidence that was obtained by the police was obtained legally. It seems to me you're right that uh, certainly in taking the animal, um, there was a reasonably good chance where she had a... The, the offense that, that there's always the concern is break and enter with the intent to commit another offense. And by taking the pig, the argument is that she broke and enter with the intent to commit a theft, which is the stealing of the pig, which is uh, regarded as a piece of property still. So that is always the issue. Um, and and again, it's it's difficult to speculate. But you're right. Maybe maybe it was uh, maybe there were words from the complainants that they didn't want to go forward. So what's interesting about this case and the case of many <sighs> activists lately that we're seeing is that they're not afraid of going to trial. They're not mm-hmm. afraid of being charged, and they're eager to use the charges as a publicity opportunity to draw more attention to the conditions that animals are facing. So McQueen uh, she said on the steps of the courthouse that the day was an absolute win for animal rights activism, but she was actually disappointed that her case wouldn't get to trial because she thought many more people needed to hear what's happening inside Canadian industrial farms. And she plans to continue raising awareness and uh, shed some light on how animal agriculture conceals the truth from consumers. But, you know, it's interesting. These, These charges and the subsequent trials, as we've now seen with the pig trial, they're not good for industry. Industry's pushing for them. They want activists to be charged. But the trials, I think you can say, are ultimately not good for the industries because they do shed light on practices that most people find very disturbing. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that when you you have to be careful of what you wish for in these senses, because there's no question that the industry is, is you can see from the statements they make when these protests go on or when these invasions come on or when this information comes to light. And it's very clear that they don't want that type of activism occurring on their properties. But at the same time, as you point out, these trials are not good for them. I mean, the whole idea of having a trial is that uh, you, you the defense gets the right to put its own case on trial, and it gets the right to try and show uh, what was going on behind uh, these farm doors. Now, the extent to which that's permissible is an interesting case. As these sort of cases go forward, it'll be interesting to see how much leeway activists will have. Um, We look at the Anita Krines trial, and seems to me those the defense got a lot of leeway from that judge. I don't think they'll get as much leeway in every case to be able to put the industry on trial. It's a nice idea to say that we as activists or advocates want to put the industry on trial. Um, the difficulty in doing that is that the law of evidence doesn't always allow you to bring as much as you'd like against these farms. But again, in some cases, the judges will be able to do it. And in some cases, defense lawyers will be creative in showing links between what was going on and the conduct that took place. And in those cases, it'll be very possible. And, and as you point out, it does it does create a lot of negative publicity for the industry when you're able to show what can go on behind closed doors. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure the meat industry ruse the day that it pushed for charges against Anita Crines because that trial was one of the best things to happen to animal law and activism in Canada. And it, you know, it ultimately contributed and all the publicity certainly helped launch the SAVE movement internationally, which is, of course, the uh, group that Anita Crines founded and was involved with and and fed water to pigs under the auspices of. So, Peter, let's switch now mm. to the, the Abbotsford case, yeah. case, which is really interesting. Mm. So um, a couple of weekends ago, 200 animal activists descended on Excelsior pig farms in Abbotsford, B.C. Earlier in the week, there had been a very disturbing video released from that hog farm 
showing sick and dead pigs cramped, uh, packed into cramped, uh, cramped crates, pigs with severe injuries who were unable to properly walk. Uh, there was a dead pig who appeared to be in a very advanced state of decomposition, um, dead piglets as well. It was frankly not unusual. It's exactly what you would expect to see on farms. Every time we see footage from a farm, this is what we see. Well, certainly from big industrial farms, yeah, that are doing thousands of pigs. Certainly. So it it was uh, extensively covered by the news media in Vancouver and British Columbia. People mm. were very shocked by this. The SPCA is now investigating. The pig farm, uh, interestingly, was owned, is owned by one of the directors of the BC Pork Producers Association. <laughs> I believe we made note of that in last week's episode, or last week's episode, the idea that, yes, that is a funny thing, that this is one of the, the board members, and not the first time we've seen that happen. No, and the, the, the pig industry or the farming industry in general, when these cases come out, they always try to say, oh, it's an isolated incident, it's a few bad apples. Mm. I mean, is it really a few bad apples if one of the people you'd expect to have the highest standards, somebody involved in the association, if that's who's being accused here? There's a lot of rotten apples in there. It's just, you know, Camille, everywhere you go, there's a little bit of rot in this apple, a little bit of rot in that apple. I wouldn't eat any of them. <laughs> don't eat any of those apples. <laughs> Actually, do eat apples, don't eat pigs. Right, exactly. <laughs> So this, this footage came out, people were appalled. It prompted uh, this crowd of activists to show up to the farm at about 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Mm. Uh, about 65 of them walked right up to the farm door, to the barn door, walked inside and occupied the barn. They live streamed while they were in there. They showed people the conditions that pigs were enduring. They saw pigs with scratches and wounds all over them. Uh, they saw many pigs in squalid condition. It was not a pretty video. And uh, first-person accounts from being inside that barn, I've heard a few of them now. I've seen some posts on Facebook and social media. People said that the the smell was just overwhelming. The horrible smell of pig waste that these animals are apparently just festering in was almost enough to make them sick. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, the, the, the discussion of the case. And the activists... Apparently came in wearing, you know, there were always concerns about disease and things like that. And apparently they came in wearing biohazard suits. And, and we should stress that not all, not everybody entered the farm. There were two groups that went in, correct? There was one group that went into the farm and there was one group that protested outside the farm. That's right. And there's no question that the group that protested outside the farm was, uh, you know, above reproach in, in, the, in the eyes of the law. There was no concerns. You're allowed to protest. Uh, they were on public property at the time, I believe. And yeah, they, they were, were on they a were, public road on the side of the road. They were entitled to protest, and they, they, were all, they all left at the end of the day without incident. That's right. They sang songs. They had some chants and some signs and uh, gave speeches and spoke about why they were there and what they were doing. Uh, the media, too, w was there, of course. Mm. What ended up happening, and of course the police were called and attended, is there was a negotiation and the activists advised that they would leave the burn if the media was allowed to come in and document the conditions. So in the end, some media did enter. I, I'm told, I don't know for sure, but I'm told that the media didn't get access to the worst of the mm. worst, mm. that perhaps the pig farmers tried to prevent them from seeing some of the most appalling conditions. But in the end, it was a huge news story. Uh, and one person so far has been charged, to my knowledge. So far, yeah. So far. So far. But what's, what's interesting about this, again, uh, and these are two examples recently of activists mm. taking a fairly bold approach and being unconcerned about the consequences of the law and more concerned about the consequences for the animals. And there were other ones as well. We spoke a few weeks ago about some uh, similar actions in Ontario where activists descended on some dairy farms and streamed the conditions there and were on private property. I'm starting to worry about legal pushback from legislators and from powers that be. We already know that there's at least one so-called farm rights lawyer who's been pushing and, and complaining that activists have not been charged or that charges are being withdrawn in these cases. Recently, a fur industry lobbyist testified before the House of Commons Agriculture Committee, and in his view, he thinks that because industries keep having these videos released about conditions on their farms, and particularly the fur farms, that instead of, you know, maybe inspecting farms or regulating them, he thinks the appropriate response is for Canada to enact U.S.-style anti-terrorism laws to target activists who take videos on farms. And we, we talked about that last week a little bit, about how that would be a gross overreaction of what's going on. But we should also perhaps just mention that although these two cases we've mentioned look similar, they're actually 
different. There are some legal nuances, um, and and again, it's it's premature to discuss whether or not um, any of these people are guilty of anything. Obviously, Ms. McQueen's not guilty of anything because they've pulled the charges. But we talked about Ms. McQueen, and we talked about the truth is not every incursion. It may sound that way to the non-lawyer. Every time you go into somebody's private property, that doesn't constitute a criminal offense per se. That constitutes the act, what is known as the civil act of trespass. So when you trespass on a private property, the private property owner has the right to ask you to leave. And if they don't, if you don't leave, they have the right to engage the police or my my study of property has been a little, uh, it's been a long time. So I, probably, I believe they have the ability to remove you as well if they wish to physically remove you. But I'll, I'll leave that aside. So, but let me just stress that the act of being on someone's property. So take what Ms. McQueen did. The act of simply going into the pig farm itself, in and of itself, is not a crime. It's not break and enter. It's not break and enter. trespass likely, but not break and enter. Correct. And I don't think what she did, this is debatable as well, qualifies as a mischief because mischief is the act of interfering or obstructing with property. And since she was there in the middle of the night and she was just there with the pigs, it's, it's they would have the same difficulty proving mischief as they did in the Anita Krines case, where they couldn't show that the act that she was doing was actually interfering with the pigs either. Now, let me say, the Abbotsford thing is different. There's no question that to me, you know, when I look at it just at first glance, I think they have a stronger case of mischief when you arrive in the middle of the day in a group of 60 um, and, you know, arguably interfere with the operation of the pig facility. That, I think, is slightly different factually. And again, I'm not stressing or saying that they would be convicted of that charge. I just think it's a different sort of action than what Ms. McQueen did. Right, and no judge has opined on this yet, and no, who knows if with. any of these cases will ever make it to trial, because Correct. as we mentioned earlier, it's against the industry's interest, frankly, for for that to occur. So we may get a definitive answer to this one day, or we may not, but um, for now, what I am worried about is, is the blowback from animal egg industries. I think that they are becoming increasingly fearful that Canadians want to know the truth, and this is one way that animal advocates are finding to bring them the truth. The reality is that in Canada, we don't have proactive inspections of farms. There are no regulations pertaining to the welfare of farmed animals that must be followed. And and the public, frankly, just has no view of what's going on behind the closed doors of modern Canadian farms. And I don't think that they appreciate this information being exposed by animal advocates because invariably it shows intense animal suffering. So I won't be surprised if we see some pushback in the other direction. And I don't know which way the pushback's going to go. You're right. It may come. It's. It's. I'm, I'm not as, as convinced as you are that they're against charges. I think they've pushed for charges. And you're right. It's, it's to some extent it's backfired on them in the past. And whether or not it'll be, I think Abbotsford's an interesting case because as I've said, I think Abbotsford is a much more direct confrontation than what has gone on traditionally in the past. We've seen before, I think the problem with some of the cases of the activists going in behind closed doors, like Ms. McQueen and the case we saw, I can't remember the name of the mink uh, uh, case. Malcolm Klimowicz. Right. Those cases are more difficult because it's difficult to prove the criminal act because they're essentially sneaking in, they're not disturbing anything, they're documenting things, and then they're leaving. And I think the Abbotsford case is a much more direct action type of thing. And I think that is the type of case where they, I'm not so sure they wouldn't push to have charges of mischief actually litigated, whether it's in the public interest to ever litigate these types of charges, given the the low level of damage and essentially trying to bring public uh, uh, issues in the public interest to light is another question entirely. But, uh, But I do agree with you that there is I don't think this type of thing is going to go unnoticed for long. I'm not sure what type of measures, but we've seen that the lobby groups that they have on board um, are strong, and they have many sympathetic ears um, in, 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 in both the House and in the provincial government. So it wouldn't surprise me to see these acts of activism as important in many ways as they are for bringing important conditions to light. It wouldn't surprise me to see uh, real blowback of some sort, though how it takes place is going to be something we'll have to keep an eye on. Yeah, there are many ways we've seen, of course, in the United States that states started passing egg gag legislation after undercover investigations exposed factory farms for committing animal cruelty. And those are laws that criminalize taking videos, they criminalize... Um, you know, seeking a position undercover on a farm and a variety of things like that. And they're really designed to target undercover investigations. So that's one way of doing it. There could be additional civil causes of action introduced against this type of activism. There's many of them. 
So we will be following this story and any developments. And I just want to state before we wrap up this segment that obviously nothing we've said today is legal advice. Right. We're just discussing in the abstract these sort of charges and whether or not, whether or not, you know, there are ways in which charges could be brought. But I mean, these things are so fact specific, just in the way I was talking about the differences between Jenny McQueen. It's like a lot of this stuff really goes down to like, what was the intention of the person when they entered the facility? Like literally there are really fine legal nuances here. So it's difficult, you know, to give advice as to what you should or shouldn't do as a person entering these facilities. And of course, we as lawyers should be careful, you know, we're not, we're not really supposed to encourage people to break the law to begin with. Like the, the law is the law and even the law of trespass is the law. That's, yeah, so that's one of the restrictions we have as lawyers, our ethical duty to uphold the law. Yes. Yeah, so please do not rely on anything that we've said today as legal advice or encouraging any different types of action. Although I will say, of course, that I have great respect for the role of civil disobedience in making social change. Absolutely. Heroes and Zeros. All right, now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. And for our hero, we are, this is, I believe this is a first. We are going back in time. Our hero, our hero is well and truly dead, and we are still giving out a hero of the month. So I don't think we've ever, is that a first, right? Totally a first. I don't think we've ever given out a posthumous a hero posthumous hero, but there's a reason. It does make sense. We are giving out a hero for a very special hero on a very special date. Camille, why don't you take it away? He was an early animal rights activist. His name was Leonardo da Vinci. And the reason we're doing it today is because it is the 500th anniversary of his death, which took place on May 2nd, uh, 1519. And I have to be honest, Leonardo da Vinci has always been a hero of mine. He was a vegetarian, one of the first vegetarians, but I've just been fascinated by his work. I've visited his uh, museums in France where he died, um, and, and I've always I've read several of his books and books about him, and I've just been fascinated. And it's been great because there's been a lot of online activity about Leonardo da Vinci because of this important 500th anniversary, one of our greatest artists and philosophers, but he had a lot to say about animals as well. And there's a really good case to make that he was one of the first, in a sense, animal philosophers, at least. I don't think we can call him an animal lawyer, but I think he was certainly cognizant of some of the inconsistencies in the way in which we treated animals, which we've argued is at the core of the problem with uh, our current treatment of animal cruelty and suffering. Absolutely. And there, there's evidence that he did many deeds designed to help animals, such as buying caged birds only to release them because he thought that they deserved their liberty. He spoke out against boiling lobsters alive. Can you believe that's still happening, Peter? 500 years 500 later. 500 years later. Here we are. We need Leonardo today. Yeah, and he lamented chicks who will never come to birth because humans steal hen eggs, which is like kind of an advanced level of animal activism. Like that's not something I think many people would have thought of certainly 500 years ago or even many people today. Yeah, and he said if uh, one of his famous quotes disputing the idea that humans were naturally or in some way superior to animals and allowed to do what they wanted, writing, if you are, as you have described yourself, the king of the animals, why do you help other animals only so that may be able to give up to you their young in order to gratify your palate. So again, asking questions 500 years ago about the idea uh, that animals uh, uh, should suffer so that we should be able to eat them. And I think I think early pioneers like this, obviously Leonardo da Vinci was in a uh, position of privilege and power, but I think these early pioneers were important to get people thinking about these ideas and we should never forget them, uh, even though you know they were speaking out 500 years ago. Yeah, and I do wonder what he would think if he could see the world today. I mean, would he be proud that so much activism is now happening? or more likely just feeling down that we spent the last 500 years, you know, intensifying our, our destruction of the natural world and, of course, of animals, and we're now factory farming them. Will it take us 500 years, Camille, to get a hero award on some super, super, you know, whatever advanced podcast is taking place in the future? <laughs> oh, geez, if the world still exists, if humanity still exists after climate change years, ravages yeah, exactly. us, I, I do hope that we'll be doing better for animals than we were. Maybe, but anyway... Here's to Leonardo, a well-earned uh, hero on the Animal Paw and Order podcast. I'm sure wherever he is, he's he's grateful for our <laughs> designation. Oh, boy. we have. Oh, geez. It's another zero. Oh, boy. We've done these ones. I think we, we're going to go back and total them up, Camille. We've had 31. I, I think our next zero has been the zero before. 
Oh, no doubt. It's the Canadian government. Here we are. What have they done this time? We, we, could have, we could have named them for a couple of things, to be honest. Although I think getting them on the delay for C-84, which was what I was thinking originally, a little early for that. But keep that in mind. If, if C-84 fails, we'll be coming back to the Canadian government for another zero <laughs> in about six weeks' time. But anyway, let's give them their zero for what they did this time. The Canadian government has issued export permits to Vancouver Aquarium, sort of slash Marineland, to send some belugas out of the country. So we're on the cusp of passing Bill S203, which would both outlaw the keeping of whales in this country, but also their export and their import, except in very, very narrow circumstances, if it's germane to their best interests. But what the government has done is given CITES permits to uh, these aquariums for the export of belugas. So apparently there are two applications uh, that were granted for CITES permits. And when I say CITES permits, I'm referring to the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species, mm. which in Canada requires that you get permits to ship out any animals that are listed under CITES, including beluga whales. So one interesting twist to this is that the two permits that were granted are for belugas who are at Marineland, but owned by the Vancouver Aquarium. And why this is interesting, Peter, is because the Vancouver Aquarium, frankly, everything I've seen is that they've been trying to distance themselves from Marineland. They want to appear that they're a science and conservation and research institute, that they're not in the, in the business of captivity for just display purposes anymore. Uh, they made a big show of getting out of that after activist pressure paid off. And now we find out that they, in fact, own two belugas at Marineland. So that's very interesting. Wow. And what they want to do is ship those two belugas to a facility called Oceanographica in Spain, which they actually manage. So they have the contract through Van Aqua to manage that facility. And is this simply a way of avoiding, um, because obviously once STO3 passes, the concern, I'm assuming, of Vancouver Aquarium is that they will be extremely limited on what they can do with these belugas. Is that the, is that the issue? That's right. Because they still get to keep them, even under S203. Those, those whales get grandfathered in. They do. So when S203 passes, whales who are currently in captivity in Canada, they'll remain there, obviously, because there's nowhere for them to go at this point. Uh, there's no sanctuaries that have been built yet. There is a sanctuary in the works, so that solution might be forthcoming pretty soon, but it's not quite yet. So they'll be grandfathered in, but they wouldn't necessarily be able to be shipped out of the country unless it's in their best interest. So can I ask, Camille, is this, because uh, I'm not following the story as closely as you are, um, is this a commercial transaction or because they own this other place, you're saying, so it's not like they're trying to make money off selling these belugas. Frankly, we don't know. We don't, we don't, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. The issue. The, the, the issue with this is that the permit applications and granting happened in the dark. Uh, the right. public had no idea of this. We only found out really because of a news story that came out. The government didn't announce this. Vancouver Aquarium certainly didn't, and neither did Marineland. Uh, so apart from the two permits that were granted, apparently Marineland has sought five additional permits to ship belugas to the states, and they're refusing to say where in the states those belugas are destined. Wow. Very, very interesting story. I have a feeling we might hear about this on the next episode of Paw and Order. Stay tuned for more, <laughs> potentially. We'll, we'll keep you posted on this story. It's, um, you know, obviously shipping whales out on the eve of this new ban passing is problematic for a few reasons. Uh, I, I don't think anyone wants the whales to stay at Marineland. Mm which has many, many belugas right now and not as much space as they should have. But at the same time, there's concerns about these whales being shipped out to be bred at other facilities and thus perpetuating the captive uh, population of belugas, which are exploited for shows and for people's entertainment. Hmm. Interesting. Now, we're at the end of our show. I'm going to do something I almost never do because we finished Heroes and Zeros, and this would normally be the end. But I would feel remiss, Camille. I almost feel like we forgot something at the beginning of our show. We are here in the Northwest Territories, and I think we should just say a couple of words um, um, to our hosts because we're here in the Northwest Territories. We raised this on cabin radio, and I think we forgot it in the opening part of our show. But we would be remiss, and we don't want to be uh, uh, viewed as being rude to our hosts who have been wonderful and generous to us. But we should point out that the Northwest Territories is probably the worst jurisdiction in Canada with respect to the legislation it has um, dealing with animals. It is the one jurisdiction left along, sorry, with Nunavut. And the reason for that is because they were together, so they have the same law and no jurisdiction has passed the law. They are the only jurisdiction to not have a comprehensive animal protection law within the province. And we think that's really troublesome. They have something called the Dogs Act, and it is a very old piece of legislation. And I've looked at it and it is a 
shall we say, a very old piece of legislation. And applies to one species yeah, it, dog. It, it's, it's really not well done. And essentially what it means is that the only protections existing for animals in this territory, and, and let me stress, as we did on Cabin Radio, there are different issues of cultural significance of animals, but there is also a lot of shared common ground about the importance that animals play a role in the society. And essentially the absence of a provincial act, what we have seen, means that you're left with the federal cruelty law, which if you go back to one of our earlier episodes, is one of the worst ways of trying to address inhumane treatment of animals. So the Northwest Territories is a place where people can, if they wish to do so, and I'm not impugning anybody, can really get away with things uh, against their animals and certainly uh, don't have to be worried about provincial rules that are designed to keep those animals safe. Right, and this is this is too bad, but it's also an opportunity to improve. Uh, the, the legislature of the Northwest Territories is small, and it's actually quite nimble and can get on issues pretty quickly. There is fewer business interests up here that Correct. exploit yeah. animals that would stand in the way of any legislation. So I do hope that the legislature legislature will look at this issue and perhaps make some change. And frankly, uh, and we're not we're not you know again, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I've done detailed study about issues that are going on in the NWT and whatever. But just to give an example of where provincial legislation can make a difference, we've seen where sled dogs have an issue. For example, sled dogs were also a major issue with their welfare and humane treatment of sled dogs in BC. And BC passed regulations that were designed to update and modernize the, the rules surrounding sled dogs. As always, not far enough and doesn't address the root of the problem, but nonetheless, at least there are rules in place that have the potential to make things better for animals. And in the NWT, Everything I've looked at, which is not a lot, but I've looked at some stuff while I'm here, suggests that these issues are alive and well in the, in the Northwest Territories. And we'd like to call upon our hosts who invited us out here. You know, you do have a new territorial government, from what I hear, coming into place in, in, the, next, uh, in the next six months. And I'd really like to see animal welfare on the agenda, because I think there is a lot of room to make even easy changes here in the Northwest Territories. So I think that's how we'll, we'll leave our visit here in Yellowknife. All right, well, thanks for tuning in as always. We'll see you again soon. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Pawn Order.